Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all, and I hope you've had a great week. And uh, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through Leviticus, and we are going to conclude Leviticus chapter 11 and hopefully get into Leviticus chapter 12 also in the course of this morning. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for every word of Scripture. We are so thankful that by your Spirit, through men of old, you have given us this Scripture, this Bible. We are thankful that we open it today knowing that it is not merely an artifact of things past, but it is your living, breathing Word. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will inspire us now, illuminate our eyes to see, to hear, to read, and to understand your Word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week when we were together, we were looking at Leviticus chapter 11 and the holiness code, particularly about what Israel could eat and secondarily about what Israel could touch. The world is defined by the difference between the clean and the unclean. And most importantly here, it has to do with animals that are clean and unclean. And uh, as we have seen, the, the process here is, uh, is one that follows a certain logic. We can understand the difference between animals who walk upon their paws. Israel is to eat none of those. Uh, and that would include predators, uh, panthers or lions, etc. Israel eats no, eats no lion. Uh, but it also includes dogs, which, which leads to an interesting point uh, just in the, the interpretation of Scripture, such as in a passage uh, such as the parable uh, of the rich man and Lazarus told by Jesus where the rich man lives in sumptuous luxury and Lazarus has nothing and uh, is dying on the rich man's doorstep. And it says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, dogs were not pets in the ancient world. There was the exception that Egyptian pharaohs had pets, uh, had pet dogs, particular dogs, but Egyptian pharaohs were decidedly not the moral model for Israel. Throughout most of the world, and certainly in the ancient Near East, dogs were scavengers, and so they were basically buzzards with paws. And, and so every time a dog is mentioned, and of course you, it's, it's what the prophets use sometimes as a derogatory, you know, you dog. Uh, and then, of course, you may remember that uh, Jezebel, famously, this uh, horrible anti-type, uh, horrible queen, uh, pagan, uh, bringing idolatry into Israel and God's judgment upon the nation, she dies, is cast out the window, and is devoured by dogs. A, a part of the principle of, uh, of the holiness code, as we saw when we were together last, is you don't eat things that eat things. That is to say, living creatures. You don't even if their bodies are dead. You, just, you, you do not eat animals that eat animals. You eat animals that eat vegetation and chew the cud. And we talked about how that happens and what chewing the cud means. And uh, it's basically an extended process of digestion such that uh, without being... And, and today's going to be a discussion of many things that normally you don't talk about in church and actually normally don't talk about much at all. But uh, here's something you need to keep in mind is if it's ever an issue for you. Uh, if you were to encounter what a cow drops on the ground, it will have bacteria in it, but it'll be basically healthy digestive bacteria. In other words, there are few diseases that are spread by cow or uh, horse manure. And it's because it's been so digested, it has been through so many different chemical processes and broken down so far, uh, it's a very different thing. And, and by the way, you just never mention this in church, but there's a different aroma uh, to the... Uh, excrement of predators and scavengers than to the uh, excrement of grazing animals. Okay, so there you go. We talked about it in church. You know, all the 12 and 13-year-old boys are going to be very, very sad they missed this particular lesson. As we continue in uh, Leviticus chapter 11, we come in verse 13 to birds, 
And you shall detest, that's a very strong statement, detestation. You shall detest among the birds, they shall not be eaten, they are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Okay, so no birds, no, no, no birds like this. They are, uh, they are forbidden. Um, later, interestingly enough, Jewish kosher culture will become very associated with the chicken. Chicken soup, chicken broth. And uh, the chicken is not mentioned here. And uh, one of the reasons why the, the, the chicken is, is later de- decided to be kosher is because the chicken eats only grain. And uh, all I will say here for all of you who are uh, concerned with the ethics and with the uh, biology of eating, uh, that uh, free-range chickens taste stronger because they eat things that other chickens don't eat. Again, just a reminder that you're eating whatever the animal ate, and maybe that's what you prefer. Verse 20 has to do with insects. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. <laughs> so you got a picture here. This is great. Now we've gone to bugs. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind. I, I just, you know, if I'm going to eat a, a locust, I want a bald one. The cricket of any kind and the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Again, this does have a logic to it we can understand. Now, the point of the holiness code is not our logic. But it is interesting, the God who made these creatures, remember, he's the creator. Never let your creation theology be eclipsed. So he made animals with distinctions. And so bugs that have that big abdomen that you could cook doubt many of you have, but you could, uh, that, that could become uh, lawful, kosher. That's a, that's a word not found here. It's a later word. But it, it would be an acceptable, legitimate food. And, and by the way, if you are a hungry people, continuously uh, challenged by famine, and if you are living in a desert nomadic existence, it is not as if you're going to be encountering, say, a, a stray herd of cattle walking by. But you may find some, uh, some locusts. Verse 24, as we saw last week, changes because now it's not just what you eat, it's what you touch. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-hooded or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. So this turns out to be a massively important issue. And of course, we will see this in Scripture, the distinction between clean and unclean, even in encounter. So when people think of the holiness code of Israel, they think of the food and, and of the food regulations. They tend less to think of the touching regulations. And so when, for instance, you have a Jesus, again, talking about the, uh, the, the Good Samaritan, but in that parable, the man who is injured, remember that the people following the Jewish law cross the street and walk on the other side. So that, that's a part of what's happening here. You, just, you keep your distance and, and, and by the way, the, the, the becoming unclean is not quick in terms of the remedy. You, you have to go through the purification process, a matter of days. It can cut you off from your people. It can cut you off from the dinner table. It can cut you off from, uh, from any kind of, of, of worship for seven days or more, depending upon the offense. Verse 29, and these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. So these are rodents. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. 
And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. So here you have like a 24-hour cycle where uncleanness lasts you know, throughout the evening. And in the, remember, the evening is the, is the beginning of the day uh, in the, the Jewish understanding of a day. It also mentions things, and uh, you'll see in verse 32, article of wood or garment or skin or sack or any articles used for any purpose. So this is a container. So containers can become unclean. And as we're going to see, some of them can be clean. Some of them become clean only by time. Some of them cannot be. So hold on to that. Any food in it that could be eaten on which the water comes shall be unclean. So it's contamination, verse 34. And all drink that could be drunk from every vessel shall be unclean, and everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. So you can see, this is anything that touches. Whether oven or stove, it should be broken in pieces. So now you have an oven or a stove broken. Now, don't worry, this is not uh, Westinghouse. Uh, This is a clay or pottery oven, and so you have to get rid of it because it cannot be adequately cleaned. And the logic continues here. It's very interesting uh, verse 36, nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Again, there is a logic to this. It's the contamination of moisture plus any infectant or uh, infectious agent that it, it would have a, a, a far more dangerous effect. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. So again, you get somebody, this is, the, this is the duty. Somebody's got to carry the carcass. You've got an unclean thing. The presence of it's already made you likely or at least someone around you unclean. Its continued presence is uncleanness, so you have to remove it, but whoever removes it has to be unclean in order to do the removal. And so this is a, this is a logic that requires a lot of thinking, and as we shall see, that is one of the central points. I'm going to stop, pause for a moment between verses 40 and 41. Why does God order Israel to live, to eat, to touch, to clean, to think this way? Well, your first thought with a lot of this is there is a health basis here. There's a health basis, uh, for instance, with the pork, the danger of trichinosis, with other things. There, There is a clear hygienic purpose to much of this, but not to all of it. Not to all of it, at least not known to us. Maybe known to God, the creator, there is a hygienic purpose to all of it. But let's be honest, we eat much of this or we eat things that include some of this without any particular health problem that is traceable to that. Just imagine for a moment, on the other hand, how much time would have to be given to policing and to keeping this law. I mean, if, if you're the, the woman in the household, how much of your attention has to constantly be given to keeping this from touching that? How vigilant must you be to make certain that such things do not come very close, not only to your household and to your house, but to anyone in your household? How attentive must parents be to children about this? You know, what happens when, you know, you got the two eight-year-old boys in the backyard and they walk in looking at carrying bugs. They could just be unclean. The uncleanness, you know, just, just begins to spread. And, and as we shall see later, as we will encounter more of the law, just being a human body brings on uncleanness. And you have to think about this with all the ritual, with all the specificity. Most people looking at this as, as Christians will come to the assumption, most Christian scholars and theologians, Old Testament scholars, 
will come to the conclusion to which you probably have come. And that is that Israel, by keeping this law, becomes every moment more Israel. This is God's covenant people. God's covenant includes these laws. They have to think about these laws all the time. And all the time they're doing it, they're saying, I remember that I belong to God. I do this because Israel is different than every other nation. No other nation has a holiness code extended to diet like this. This is unlike every other people that they will encounter. It is radically unlike the idolatrous peoples they will displace in the land of promise. It will keep them permanently set apart. And when you say permanently set apart, I mean right now, right now in the world, amongst those who are the Jewish people who keep the law, they still live differently than everyone else. Their restaurants are still different than everyone else. I, uh, I ended up hosting Michael Medved, who's a very dear friend. And uh, he came to Louisville, and uh, I, uh, I, we, we've been on a board together for decades. And I, I was taking him to dinner. We tra- we've been in different places of the world where on, uh, on occasion... We've been speaking at events that have gone over into the Sabbath, and uh, it's been my honor at times to push the buttons in the elevator and to turn the light switches on in his room so that uh, he does not violate uh, understanding of the law. Uh, He came to Louisville, and I was eager to take him out for a nice dinner. Well, you know, I'm a Christian theologian. I think I know something about the kosher law. I think I I can find a good restaurant. I cannot find a restaurant. I could not find a restaurant uh, that, uh, that would work. I thought of all the nice places where I take people to eat, and not, not, none of them would work. I'm not going to give you the name of the restaurant, nor tell you the extended part of the story, but we ended up in an Asian restaurant because Asian restaurants don't cook with milk products at all, at least this one was certified, doesn't use milk products at all. So there's no problem of milk and and meat, uh, you know, being prepared in the same kitchen. And, you know, I just realized I have had to go through, I have gone through a very, very difficult process to decide where I can take my Orthodox Jewish friend to eat dinner. And he has to think about this 24 hours a day. And uh, so it's a, it's a difference. And it's a difference in the old and the new covenant immediately. The new covenant is very different than the old covenant. As Peter discovered, of course, Early in the book of Acts, precisely because we are not bound by this law, but by, the, but by the law of Christ. But I want us to look, because this is the climactic passage that we are now encountering. In order to understand this passage in its context, however, I don't want us to continue reading on to verse 41. I first want us to turn to 1 Peter. So if you will, turn over in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. This incredibly beautiful passage from the Holy Spirit through Peter to the church. You come to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. We read, Therefore, putting, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that is a reference in 1 Peter to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where we are just about to arrive. But what I want you to notice is that here Peter is saying that Christ's people are called to holiness with the very same command that is given to Israel in Leviticus chapter 11. But as much, much as most of you or Christians generally know this command of God's holiness from 1 Peter 1 rather than from Leviticus 11, uh, you see it in quotation marks. If, if you have a reference Bible, you see Leviticus 11.44 there, there in the note. So, so Peter, writing to a, a largely formerly Jewish congregation, they would have known this verse 
so very well Leviticus 11.44 because the principle is exactly what we read there. So let's just, no, not yet. Don't, look, don't, don't go back to Leviticus 11 yet. The, the principle is the Lord declares, I am holy, therefore you must be holy. And, and so that makes sense to us. Here's God's covenant people. He makes this covenant with Israel. And he says, because I am holy, you will be holy. Now, it's a derivative holiness. It's a conditional holiness. But even as God's holiness is unconditional and infinite, the fact is God's people are to mirror by obedience God's own character. And that's, that's central to the New Testament as well. Not by our maintenance of the holiness code, but by our obedience to the law of Christ. But when you're in 1 Peter 1, and you, you hear the Old Testament verse, I am holy, therefore you must be holy, then you would think, just I think you would think, reading 1 Peter, that this must be in such a majestic context in the Old Testament. This must be one of those mountaintop, climactic passages in the Old Testament that now works its way into the New. And one of the things we need to see is that our reading the Old Testament has to be guided by the New Testament as Christians. Our reading the Old Testament has to be guided by Christ. Because remember, when he was asked about the first and greatest commandment, he, he, he goes to the, the foundational Shema, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Then he said, the second is likened to it. And again, he goes, he goes to Leviticus. But this time, it's, a, it's an obscure verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That, that wasn't like on the thresholds of synagogues. That, that was not considered to be such a hinge verse in Israel. But Jesus elevates it and says, you should have seen this. Well, the same thing is true now in 1 Peter. But the context, again, is not maybe what you expect. Look at Leviticus 11, beginning verse 41. The context is bugs. Right, bugs. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. No eating centipedes. Stop it. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about the beast and the bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make distinction, a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. I, maybe I'm still a 12-year-old boy, but I find this absolutely fascinating. The climax comes with bugs. And, and it's because they're detestable. The distinction, even visibly and maybe even viscerally, between the clean and the unclean comes down to this. And God declares his own holiness in the most emphatic way, in such an emphatic way that Peter will pick it up from this context about bugs in Leviticus chapter 11 and transfer it into the great mandate for the holiness of God's people. But of course, by the time you get to 1 Peter chapter 1, it is no longer with reference to bugs. It's with reference to immoral acts. In other words, God's New Testament, New Covenant people are by our behavior and conduct, which Peter makes extremely clear in 1 Peter chapter 1 and continues in 1 Peter chapter 2. It is by our conduct, by our way of life, by our avoidance of sin that we are to demonstrate God's holiness. It, it, we are known not by what we eat and what we do not eat. We are to be known by what we do and what we do not do. It's a radical transformation, but it's the continuation of one great fundamental truth, and that is the holiness of God. F fundamental to the Old Testament holiness code is the holiness of God. Fundamental to the New Testament holiness code is the holiness of God.
Leviticus 11.44 is the common hinge between the old covenant and the holiness to which Israel is called and the new covenant. Now remember, we're looking at something else. Notice how in Israel, faithfulness to the covenant is referred to overwhelmingly in externals. What you eat, what you don't eat, what you touch, what you don't touch. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, spectacularly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus internalizes. The law of Christ is more more than anything else internalized. And that means that we have, and and this is what's very interesting. Let's say you go back to the the Religionis Geschichte School. I mentioned that, the, the history of religion school in Germany in the 19th century. You go back to the the uh, religionis geschichte school and and they explain they explain different psychological types in religions they're going to say that there is there are there are neuroses that was a 19th century early 20th century word that you don't hear much from psychiatrists today but they will say there were neuroses that are automatically produced by different religious systems the neuroses produced by Judaism are the neuroses of, uh, of, external, of external forces. It may f- cause internal, the Yiddish word is surus, surus meaning sturm and drang, you know, storm. But the Christian neurosis is the neurosis of self-examination. And it's a very different thing. The Christian neurosis is the Okay, I know I've not committed adultery in my body, but have I created adultery? Have I committed adultery, uh, you know, in my heart? So, and it shows you again how these things show up. Where even people who are just trying to look at religion as religion, trying to just look at it that way, they will look at it. And so, the holiness code of Judaism and the holiness code of is of uh, of the church produce even what. Liberal German scholars in the 19th century would say are are different patterns of. Of thinking. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus wants. That is to say, Jesus intentionally drove the issue to the interior rather than the exterior. And when it comes to the moral law, the moral law of the Old Testament is entirely recapitulated in the New Testament. The moral law, not the ceremonial and, and not the dietary law. But as we conclude with uh, Leviticus chapter 11, It's this marvelous statement of the holiness of God that becomes one of the great centering statements of biblical theology in the context of a passage about bugs. The flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child... Then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. So much of this is uh, shocking to the modern mind, this part of the holiness code. We need to recognize that in no way is childbirth associated with being unclean. The act of giving birth to a child is never referenced as unclean. It is the blood, the issue of blood that is unclean. And that just gets to a more fundamental principle, which we have seen and will see, and that is that anything that comes out of the body is unclean. Anything. And so what we have seen in terms of the diet is the control of what goes into the body. But everything that comes out of the body is unclean. And uh, so that, that means that there are distinctive male and female ways, either through semen or through, uh, or through a menstruation that can render one unclean for a specified number of days. One has to be outside the house, as we shall see, uh, for men. And, uh, but also just the entire process of, uh, of boils or anything else that, that might, might become, where there's something coming out of the body, it is, uh, it is to make one unclean. 
Why the difference between the, uh, the term of uncleanness for a boy and a girl? That isn't clear. Again, none of this is, is explained to us in order that we would understand some biological or even theological basis. Very little is explained that way. Instead, this is God in his sovereignty saying, here's the distinction. The assumption in, uh, in most uh, scholarly circles is that the rabbis were right in terms of their, uh, their commentaries on this text and saying that uh, because the female being born is female with the power or capacity of eventual menstruation, then that is counted into the uncleanness of, of the mother. And again, this does not mean that females are unclean. It simply means that females, through the process of menstruation, uh, are unclean by that process for a defined length of time and must go, go through the purification. And, uh, and, and that is a, a monthly process uh, for women in that cycle of life and for girls and uh, you'll notice something else, and, and this is, this is kind of hard for us, but this is, this is not a Jewish thing. This is an ancient thing. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everything about everybody. Uh, because, I mean, this is, these are not houses with bedrooms. These are, this is the existence. And by the way, there aren't any houses right now. This is, Israel's wandering in the wilderness, so it basically intense. But even when Israel has houses, if you go to the ancient Near East, as you go to any ancient civilization, a family is living in an incredibly small amount of space. An untold number of dozens of families would live in this room. They didn't because they didn't have big rooms. But if you add up all their smaller rooms, you know, it, would be, it would be a shed. Families are living in a shed, basically. Very small enclosed space. There is no privacy. There, there is none. And so this is something lived out in the communal life of a family and the, the communal life of, a, of, of your tribe, the communal life eventually of Israel writ large. The issue of circumcision immediately comes up. And here again, we have a distinction between Israel and other peoples. Circumcision predated Israel. If you go to Egypt, adult male circumcision is depicted over and over again in the art of the, the, the pyramids, in, uh, in the reliefs as they are known, the, uh, the carvings in Egyptian temples. The young men appear to be extremely healthy adults, very young and adults. They're warriors. And so it was a way of, uh, of identifying warriors. It was a, an elite status. It looks like these young men are being honored by this ritual in order that they would be set apart. Uh, it was also known throughout some of the ancient world that men taken as slaves would be circumcised as a mark. But without going into great detail... Uh, that particular circumcision was partial. So it was a different kind of mark. And so it was uh, by making a, a V incision rather than removing the entire foreskin. So again, it was, this, this was known. What Israel does that is different, what Israel is commanded by God to do that is different is the circumcision of infant boys. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 17... God makes his covenant with Abraham. We'll just begin in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, again, this is not your normal Sunday school material, but there's a lot here. So you'll notice that in Genesis 17, this is God's unilateral commandment to Abraham as the sign of the covenant, and it's every male. So at that point, obviously, Abraham is old, and there are others with him, and eventually you will have a ritual circumcision of all the adult males. But the point is that uh, that the infant males, these baby boys, are to be circumcised on their eighth day. That is completely new. But the circumcision is also defined in the flesh of your foreskin. So this is not a slit. This is not a partial circumcision. This is a full circumcision. And that, by the way, comes up again and again in the Old Testament, such as uh, when, uh, when David will slay an army and uh, as a sign of victory and of God's victory, he'll circumcise all the dead soldiers and they will talk about how the foreskins pile up. Okay, well, that, so that's, that's the absolute removal of the flesh. And uh, so that sets the Jewish people apart in two ways. Number one, the timing, it's of babies. So the point is here, this is not a puberty ritual as is found throughout much of the, uh, of the ancient world, and in particular Africa, and still today. Uh, it is still an African practice and uh, if you look at a map of the world where there are rates of circumcision of males around the world, there are only two places where a majority of, of males as infants are circumcised, and that is Israel and the United States. Those are the only two places on the entire map of the world where that shows up. About a 50% of total male population being circumcised will show up, uh, however, in a much larger part of the world, and that is covered by... Uh, some regions of Africa, and then almost the entirety of the Muslim world. And then the rest of the world, uh, a, a very small minority of males generally are, are circumcised. It's, uh, it's either unknown or very unusual or for just some kind of uh, medical purpose. But, it's a long story behind that, but uh, in Islam, the uh, circumcision is generally on boys between the ages of uh, uh, something like 7 to 11, uh, before puberty. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was with uh, some of our missionaries in Istanbul, and uh, it was, it was a, a Sunday. And so we had met in a church, an unregistered church, where I'd had the honor of preaching. And uh, then we were, we were just taking a walk along the Bosphorus, and uh, there was this little boy, I don't know, he's like eight or nine years old, and he was dressed unbelievable. I mean, it was this it was Turkish uh, ceremonial dress. He looked like a little king, a little prince. And uh, they were taking his picture and all the rest. And uh, the kid just didn't look all that happy, just to be honest. And I, I didn't quite get it. So uh, Zane Pratt was with me. Many of you know Zane, formerly a member of this church. And I said, why does he look so terrified? And uh, because I mean, he's just taking pictures. You just look at this kid's face. He is not happy. And, uh, and Zane said, well, it's, today's his circumcision. And, okay, I, I can understand this. <laughs> I, I, I can get this. Um, and, and in, in uh, Africa, it sometimes comes later because it's a manhood ritual. Uh, you know, it's, none of that is here. And so what makes the circumcision in Israel immediately different is that the baby subjectively is not, is not to have memory of. The circumcision. It is not something that is an achievement, as in you've reached this point in life. It is not something that is merely a tribal marking, and, and the young male must earn the right to have this tribal marking. He's a son of the covenant. Now, remember, and again, this is just Bible, folks, and it's essential to understanding this. The Old Testament is primarily extended the Old Covenant by seminal transmission. I mean, in other words, it is. Israel is in Abraham and in Abraham's seed. This is, this is biological. And so 
This is a continuation. So the young males, they are to be circumcised, but they are in the covenant by the fact they've been born to their parents. They are already in the covenant. They do not achieve becoming a part of the covenant people of Israel. They are born into it and from the beginning. And, uh, and you think about, well, the eighth day, well, just, just follow through. Uh, there, it, all, it does all, all make sense because the mother can be a part of it at that point where she could not have been uh, if it came earlier. So the baby's not taken away from the mother until such time that this can be a family uh, ritual. And of course, it's always been a ritual. It's, it, it always has been. It's now called the, the you know, the bris. It's uh, in rabbinic Judaism and even today in ethnic Judaism. Uh, last night, I was thinking about something and, and was asking myself a question about a particular Jewish uh, tradition. And so there are even now secular mohels or moils, as they generally pronounce moils, uh, uh, specialists in doing this. Uh, and uh, there are even now secular moils and, and, and uh, secular rabbis to uh, preside over because so much of Judaism is secular. But still there is the continuation of this process. The radical distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is symbolized by the distinction and non-distinction of circumcision. Now, this is such an issue, brothers and sisters, this is such an issue that, remember, the Jerusalem Council actually had to meet to determine whether male converts, Gentile converts to Christianity, had to be circumcised. The covenant identity of Israel was so clearly tied to the physicality of male circumcision that it was beyond the imagination of the Jewish apostles, the disciples, just in their own Jewish thinking, that you could become a part of God's saving covenant, this new covenant, without likewise being circumcised. And then, of course, it, it comes down to a debate and it comes down to the, the Holy Spirit intervening uh, to make very clear that... Uh, you are not to burden Gentiles by requiring them to be circumcised. Because for one thing, as the later tension in the New Testament makes clear, circumcision, and it, 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 it is never depreciated as, a, as an act. It is never dishonored as the old covenant. But those who are the legalists who are threatening the integrity of the preaching of the gospel are referred to as those of the circumcision. In other words, they, they are making this the issue. Circumcision becomes then the, uh, the symbolic way of describing the, the people who prefer the law to the gospel. And then, of course, we're told circumcision is of no matter in the church. So that, that's, that, that's clear. That's good for us to know. But that also just helps us to understand the radical nature of what we've just read in Leviticus chapter 12. This is setting Israel apart from every other nation. There is no other nation on the earth at this time that practices the circumcision of male infants. This is a non-conscious circumcision. That is to say the baby's not to remember this. This is not a rite of passage uh, primarily about the baby because the baby from the very onset is to be known as a son of Abraham. And this is not an achievement. This is something, the baby doesn't have to earn this. The baby doesn't have to deserve this. It is simply entry into the covenant by being born to Israel. This is Abraham's son. He shall be circumcised even as Abraham himself circumcised his son Isaac so shall this new son of Israel be circumcised and uh, then become a boy, a, a man of Israel. Why the mark in the male? All kinds of reasons. There are all kinds of things that could be surmised. We do not have a divinely inspired commentary on the why. We do have divinely inspired references in Scripture that help us to understand. So, number one, the circumcision of the man is a visual mark not only to himself but to any woman who might see him naked. You have an authenticity issue. It's a, it's a mark in the flesh so that with other men you would instantly know who is and is not a, a son of, of Israel, at least, at least by that mark. 
If this man were to contemplate fornication or adultery or any other sin, he would be exposed as a son of the covenant. Thus, his disobedience of the covenant made very, very clear even in his, uh, his commission of a sexual sin. We don't know all the reasons. Uh, it is interesting that even the ancient Egyptians understood a hygienic gain, particularly in a desert context, of, uh, of circumcision. Now, there's, there's nothing absolute there, but you'll notice that came back up and actually informs the American Medical Association and the American Pediatric Association's advice to parents on the circumcision of baby boys. It is a non-recommendation. It is not a recommended no, not a recommended yes. But the current status of the American uh, Pediatric Association uh, is that it is likely more helpful than any risk of harm because of the uncircumcised uh, ability to harbor disease. This really became very clear in the AIDS crisis, and, uh, but also comes up with uh, other viral diseases as well. Is that what is behind this? I don't think so. In other words, I don't think, I don't think you can reduce the holiness code given by God to anything hygienic any more than the food can be just about worries about trichinosis in pork. It has to be something far more important than that. And it, if we're honest, it has to be something beyond our rational imagination. If we could figure all of this out, I think that would be a big problem. I think for one thing, this shows us is a testimony of the fact this is not a humanly devised system. This is a logic known only to the God who created the entire cosmos and created us in our flesh, created us male and female for his glory and made us different. And uh, this is a part of, this is a part of the, the law. You'll notice how unconditional it is. You'll notice how natural it is. From Genesis 17, now you fast forward to Leviticus 11 and then Leviticus 12, and you'll notice circumcision is still defined, but there's no elaborate definition because now it is just common. This is, Israel knows what circumcision is. Now, Jesus will be circumcised on the eighth day. And when we are together next, we'll look at the sacrifices to be made. And uh, just to fast forward, we will be looking at Luke chapter 2. And it's interesting to see there that the allowance made for the sacrifice given by the poor is what Mary and Joseph do. And it's, it's right out of Leviticus 12. We're going to have the joy of seeing Leviticus 12 fulfilled in the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. So that we will want to spend some time on that, so we'll do that the next time we are together. But with, uh, with just a couple of minutes in closing, I said something that is rather shocking if you think about it. And, and so let's just think about it for a moment so you don't have to go and worry about this or investigate it. I said that there are only two places on planet Earth. If you look at a globe and you were to see, you know, countries where the vast majority or a clear majority of baby boys are circumcised as infants, I said that and the, the map I was looking at that was colored blue, the only blue territory is the United States of America and Israel. So why? Why? Why the United States and Israel? Um... In the United States, less than 1% of circumcisions are religious in nature. So, as you're thinking about the Old Testament covenant, and you're thinking about Israel, you think about the Jewish people, less than 1% of the infant circumcisions in the United States in medical facilities are, uh, are religious in motivation. Now, little footnote there. Most Jewish circumcisions do not take place in a medical context, but rather are uh, with a moil in a, in a Jewish context, a particular ritual outside of uh, the practice of modern medicine. But nonetheless, if you add all that together, it's still less than 1% uh, of all circumcisions. In the 19th century, circumcision became uh, of infant boys became far more common in Britain and in the United States. In Britain, it was primarily located in the aristocratic class. And it was associated with two things. One was philosemitism. That's a, a British movement that had vast impact in the United States. 
in uh, love of the Jewish people and love of Jewish of things Jewish. And that is when it got tied to hygiene. And it got tied to Victorian understandings of hygiene, male hygiene, and of uh, sex, the belief that this would lower the sex drive. It, it, that has no pure medical basis, but that was a part of, I mean, frankly, medicine didn't have much of a medical basis in the Victorian era either. But it became a sign of, of hygiene. And basically, it has been in decline in Britain throughout most of the 20th century to where it's now a, a very small minority. But in the United States, it just continued largely under the uh, category of custom and hygiene. And so it's just one of those odd things. You think, how in the world does something that takes place in Genesis 17, and here is, is put in the Holiness Code in Leviticus chapter 11, how does that come down to what takes place usually on the second day of life for a lot of the majority, although just about a 50-50 division right now, I'm told, uh, of uh, infant boys in the United States. And you just go, this is just very different. How is it that millennia later, you look at a globe, there's these two spots on the earth, Israel uh, and the United States. But I close by saying that I have to be a Baptist here and say that one of the things we have to think about is what happens to circumcision in the transition from the old covenant to the new. The Presbyterian argument for infant baptism is that baptism becomes the replacement for the model of, it becomes, it becomes the continuation of the picture of circumcision done to infants uh, as a sign of their entrance into the covenant community. You will notice that does not happen here. It does not happen here because the Baptist argument is that our dear Presbyterian brothers and sisters whom we dearly love have wrongly, uh, going back all the time to the beginnings of the Reformed tradition, wrongly associated baptism with circumcision and thus have actually confused the picture of the new birth and thus confuse ecclesiology. So as we end, let's just say that we're, we're about to hear a lot of noise in the transition from the first hour to the second. And at the end of the second hour, there's an explosion of noise as all the children, uh, you know, come in to the, uh, to the worship place. And uh, they are fully a part of our families. But we pray they will fully become a part of our church. Because Israel became a part of the new covenant by birth where Jesus was very clear, his new covenant people come by entrance of the new birth. Something for us to think about as we transition here from uh, the first hour to the second. Um, just for reasons of needing to cover Leviticus chapter 12 and thinking that it might be helpful for Christians to think about this, one of the things I just say we move on from is the recognition that so much of the Old Covenant is concerned with what you eat, what you touch, and even markings on the body. God's New Covenant people marked by the circumcision of the heart rather than the circumcision of the flesh are freed to worship in an internal way that uh, should just give us great, great joy when we sing, when we pray, when we preach and hear the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for every word of Scripture. We are thankful for the covenant of old. We're thankful we've been grafted onto it. But we are unspeakably thankful for the covenant of Christ, and we cling to it in Christ's name. Amen.